Right, well, welcome to another episode of the Fatal Conceits podcast, dear listener. It's a show about money, markets, mobs, and manias, not necessarily and not always in that order. If you haven't already done so, please head over to our Substack page. You can catch us at bonnerprivateresearch.substack.com and you'll be able to find uh, there are hundreds of articles from Bill Bonner and myself for free uh, on everything from high finance to lowly politics. We've also got plenty of research reports from our investment director, Tom Dyson, and our macro man uh, up in Laramie, Wyoming. That's Dan Denning. And of course, many more conversations just like this one under the Fatal Conceits podcast at the top of the page. I'm delighted to welcome today uh, a recurring guest on this show. Uh, we're happy to have him. He is the uh, investment director of Fortune and Freedom, which is part of South Bank Investment Research over in the UK. Uh, a good friend of mine and a fellow resident down here in Argentina, although we're talking to you from uh, from different locales in the city here today. It's Mr. Robert Marstrand. Welcome back to the show, Rob. How do you do? Hi, Joel. Good to see you on this fine, sunny Buenos Aires day. Yes, yes. It's, it is shaping up to be a lovely spring, isn't it? <laughs> good to be away from the Northern Hemisphere winter. <laughs> <laughs> Now, mate, uh, I, I thought we would uh, we'd get together for a bit of a powwow today because there's been just such a saturation of news coming out of your country of birth, the UK, uh, particularly over the last few months, uh, in which we've had three prime ministers in, in as many months. Uh, we've had uh, a death of a monarch. We've had trouble in the bond markets. There's uh, you know generational high inflation and economy in the tank and, and plenty of as I've uh, noted in my recent weekend, as pink-haired morons disrupting, uh, you know, civil society at museums and such on the weekend, um, there's lots to speak about here, and I think our American readers uh, and our listeners, uh, rather around the world, will be interesting. Uh, interested to get your take. So, I thought maybe we could take it back to our last point of maybe familiarity for for most listeners. Uh, where it all kind of went haywire, and that was back to the uh, demise of Mr. Boris Johnson, affectionately known as Bojo around the world. Uh, for our listeners who are used to, at least in the United States, uh, electing a president and having he or she go through their, their four-year term, uh, do you want to just maybe back up a little bit and start with the parliamentary processes uh, over in the UK and how it can come to pass that we could have three different uh, leaders within the same party in just as many months? Yeah, sure thing, Joel. I mean, um, I have to say that Bojo is a lot snappier than his full name, which is Alexander Boris de Feffel Johnson. He's an old Etonian, <laughs> which meant he went went to Eton College, which is the posh school that uh, you know royals and aristocracy like. Um, and he is a political phenom phenomenon because he's quite posh, um, but he seems to somehow cut through and gel with the um, the sort of working class blue collar voter. So he, he is a phenomenon. We'll come back to him. Right. So how does it work? Uh, we have constituencies around the country. People elect an MP, a member of parliament at each uh, general election, which has to happen every five years or less. And basically the party that gets the most MPs into the House of Commons in parliament um, becomes the government and their leader becomes the prime minister. At the same time, the, the head of state, which would be a president in most countries, the head of state is the queen or now the king, King Charles III. 
Um, and that's like a figurehead. They're not meant to get into the dirty business of day-to-day -day politics. In fact, they're positively meant to keep their noses out of it. So the prime minister, the head of that party with the majority, is the person that basically runs the country through the parliamentary process. Now, what that means is that prime minister can be deposed um, by various methods. Uh, one is uh, via a general election. So they might just get to the end of their term or, or run out of road, have to, have to launch a general election, and they might lose power because their party gets thrown out. The uh, second way is if there's enough rebellion in their party, there might be a vote of no confidence in the House of Commons, in Parliament. So all the opposition would vote against them, obviously, plus a few rebels. They get thrown out, and then you basically have a general election. And the third way, which is what we've been seeing recently, is that their own party can turn on them. And in the Conservative Party, which, uh, which we're talking about, which runs the country, the Tories, as they're also known, uh, I believe they have to get something like 50 letters from members of parliament of the party to something called the 1922 Committee. That launches a, uh, a, a leadership process. So basically, the current uh, leader can, can run, and anyone else can throw their hat in the ring. And whoever comes out on top after a number of stages ends up being the prime minister because they end up running that or being the head of that uh, that party. So as opposed to a directly elected president, the prime minister is the head of the most powerful party in the parliament. Uh, and they that can be changed. So that's the main difference. Right. Kind of like the CEO of a uh of an organization if they're not doing a good job and their underlings think maybe they need a change at the at, at the helm they can uh, they can appoint somebody new yeah it, it would be like if if in in the usa i guess the nearest um comparison would be it, it would be like uh, the country was run by whoever was head of the majority party in the house of representatives it's effectively that <clears throat> And then, right. and then you okay. have the Senate as well. And in the UK, we have the House of Lords, which is an unelected body, which is another bizarre thing we could talk about another time. Right. <laughs> All right. So let, let's go back to <clears throat> Boris Johnson then, because I was, I was in the UK, I think in uh, July of this year, and there was already rumblings that um, some indiscretions of his uh, had lost him the confidence of the party. There was um, you know, uncoverings of hypocrisy, you know, during the COVID lockdowns where he was said to be having parties and such. It, it, it seemed like, you know, people had had essentially a gut full of top-down management of the, the, the pandemic by way of lockdowns. And, uh, you know, people were none too happy about the kind of good for the, you know, what's rules for thee, not for me kind of attitude that they perceived to be happening there. So he was he was deposed, which brings us to... Well, uh, uh, hold on, hold on. Okay. it wasn't quite for that reason. So that, okay. that was called Partygate or Cakegate, everything's a yep. something gate. Um, <laughs> what, what it was, was it was a series of, of parties or social gatherings uh, by him and all the people very closely around him in number 10 Downing Street, um, who were in breach of the rules that they'd imposed on everyone else about not having yep. social gatherings during COVID. Now, the actual breach itself was quite minor in a way. It's a few people sitting around eating pizza or cake or having a beer in the garden or whatever. <laughs> the, point was, the point was people people were furious because they'd imposed these rules on everyone else. You couldn't visit your aging parents in a care home and, yep. and you couldn't get your friends around. And so that was the point. But that wasn't what actually finished him. It nearly did. Okay. Um, he, he has a, a, a habit of being a little bit economical with the actualité. He's a bit uh, economical with the truth, should we say. That's... Um, 
and and often gets caught out. What actually finished him was there was a scandal with a, an MP um, who has a rather appropriate name. Uh, his name is Chris Pincher, and they say Pincher by name, Pincher by nature. And it turns out he'd um, had a reputation for being a bit um, frisky with other men when he'd had a few too many drinks. And he was accused of being uh, of having sexually assaulted two other MPs, I believe. And Boris Johnson had sort of claimed that he didn't know about it. And that, that was the final straw, that, that it was the claims about not knowing about things or mm. you know, not being involved, then being discovered. And that was the final straw, and they decided to kick him out. Okay, so between the between the pinches and the and and the parties, uh, Boris yeah. was shown the door. Uh, this is this all gets a little kind of Game of Thrones from here with some coup d'etats and 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 uh, et tu brute. But um, so then we have um, Liz Truss is the the sort of billed as the kind of Maggie Thatcher Iron Lady version two She comes <laughs> along um, with her her new chancellor of the exchequer her her mini budget um tax cuts she's supposed to um you know rein in um the the economy she's supposed to get you know tamp down on uh, inflation which is running i think it was 13 plus percent uh presently so it's it's still you know as high or higher than it is in many other western countries at the moment but Bring us up to up to speed with what happened with the very short-lived uh, trust government. I think fifty-five days or something in the end. Yeah. So so Johnson resigned in July. There was a an election process within the Conservative Party, which they narrowed down the candidates to two: the Conservative Party members, who are people that sort of pay to, you know dues to the party. About one hundred forty thousand people voted, chose Liz Truss over Rishi Sunak, who we'll come on to, um, and. She so she got into power uh, in the middle of this. You know, literally, she went to see the Queen to officially take the role in September, um, and the Queen passed away. I think two days later, which was obviously a massive period of of mourning for the country. And the Queen's been on the throne for seventy years. Mm. Then, then there was the period of you know the the long queue around London to go and see the Queen's uh, coffin and the, and the, uh, the funeral service, and then sort of very shortly after that champing at the bit, the trust government and her chancellor, who's like the um, treasury secretary, um, launched this mini budget, which was all about um, tax cuts and energy subsidies and promised structural reforms to get rid of EU law after Brexit and um, very non-specific sort of statements about cutting public spending. It was at the same moment that the markets were already throwing a wobbly, dollar was going through a spike. Um, a uh, lot of currencies falling against the dollar, a lot of bond markets dropping as yields rose in this inflationary rising interest rate environment. But they got all the blame. I mean, that part of it was their fault. Frankly, the uh, communication was bad. They did it too fast. It was rushed. Um, they should have tried to build a bit more consensus. And uh, in that market turmoil, pension funds melting down, Bank of England having to step in. Um, we can talk about the pension funds. It's a technical thing. But... Um, Basically, the party turned on her, and so she, she she got to a position where she suddenly had to backtrack on these policies rapidly, really rapid backpedaling. She mm-hmm. kicked out kicked out senior people who'd only just been appointed, like the, like the chancellor, the finance minister, effectively, and then she was gone. And um, you know, she, I think she resigned on day forty five, 
And she was actually out of the role on day 49, something like that. She's the shortest serving prime minister in British history. Yeah, it's quite, it's quite extraordinary, isn't it, to to have such a almost turnstile style leadership uh, in in a you know we're, we're not talking about some banana republic uh, here, which we might expect something like this to happen down in our neck of the woods here in South America. But this is a G seven, you know, G seven country. People are supposed to be sensible and have a stiff upper lip and 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 whatnot. And as you say, markets throwing wobblies and all kinds of things. I want to go back to that. Um, to the the bond uh, market for a second and the issue with with the UK gilts because uh, it was quite extraordinary to watch in such a short period of time, um, you know, just what was going on with the pound sterling, um, what was happening with, with yields. I just want to read a, a quick um, quote from the Bank of England, which eventually stepped in um, with a both halting its uh, bond selling program and announcing that it was going to buy up to sixty-five billion pounds worth of worth of bonds. Here's the the quote. Here it says, "Were dysfunction in this market to continue or worsen, there would be a material risk to UK financial stability." It's quite an extraordinary statement. Uh, it goes on to say, "This would lead to an unwarranted tightening of financial conditions and a reduction of the flow of credit." Uh, to the real economy, which I guess is part of the problem in the first place. But do you want to maybe unpack what was happening um, ac- across the pond during that sort of ten-day period? Because you know, I remember first going over to the to the UK twenty plus years ago and being very disappointed when my meager Aussie dollar savings savings was slashed by two thirds. The pound was uh, was king or or queen at the time. And uh, we very nearly approached, I think, pound US dollar parity, which is something I haven't seen in my lifetime. And um, and yeah, just just walk us through what was happening uh, at that particular moment. You mentioned pension funds, of course, being at, at the core of it. Yeah, well, the, the, the root of this, of course, is that um, during COVID, all the big Western central banks printed huge amounts of money in the process called QE to basically fund the government handouts, uh, as far as I'm mm-hmm. concerned, and they, they don't obviously present it that way, but they were printing money so that governments could borrow more money and spend it on you know, the stimmy checks or in, in the UK furlough payments, as they were called. Um, Bank of England's been very slow to respond to the inflation that that's caused. In fact, they didn't even realise it was coming. I mean, clearly all the yeah, Fed, Bank of England, European Central Bank, plus others, all made the same mistake, didn't think this would create inflation, and it has. Don't blame it all on Putin. Trust me, it's not all his fault. It's the central banks. Um, The day before the mini-budget that that Truss's government launched, the tax cutting or actually cancelling tax rises, (laughs) most of it, um, budget, uh, the Bank of England had raised interest rates, but by less than the market expected. Mm. And they're way behind the curve compared to the Federal Reserve in terms of getting a grip on inflation. Inflation's already over 10% a year. And still rising in the UK. And they announced the first stage of quantitative tightening. So that's selling gilts, uh, government, UK government bonds, into the market to drain liquidity. Um, so they were both, uh, you know, tightening policy in one way, but not tightening it enough in another way. So they weren't raising interest rates enough. Then you've got this the market throws a wobbly. And they have to completely backtrack and reverse and say, oh, well, actually, no, we're not selling uh, gilts this week anymore. We're going to buy them instead. Mm. Uh, I think it was two weeks, two weeks, actually. 
Now, what's interesting is the pension funds you mentioned. So these are the corporate pension funds that, that the money is sort of managed on behalf of a, of a company or a public sector body to provide pensions for, for people in the future. It's not the, one, not the sort of pensions where you put your own money into your own fund and then invest it. It's those corporate funds. Now, it turned out, who knew? It turned out they've been playing fast and loose in the derivatives markets, these supposedly safe, stable, heavily regulated, boring pension funds have been taking on leverage um, in, the, in, the, in the derivative markets through something called uh, liability-derived investment or something, uh, something like that. It's LDI, anyway. I can't remember the acronym, acronym so many. Um, and this leverage, when the bond market crashed, uh, or moved quite quickly, meant they had to stump up tons of extra cash to cover their margin calls, their sort of collateral, if you like, mm -hmm. with the people they were trading with. Um, and they couldn't liquidate fast enough, which was going to create a snowball effect in the bond market and make things worse. So the bank stepped in to stabilize the bond market. But the, the interesting thing is it subsequently came to light that the Bank of England itself had 82% of its own uh, employee pension fund in one of these leveraged schemes that, in my opinion, mm. shouldn't have been going on in the first place. So there was also a massive conflict of interest uh, at the Bank of England. And obviously, it would have been terribly embarrassing if their pension fund got into big trouble. So <laughs> there's a lot of, sort of layers and layers to this stuff. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It, um, it is, it, again, I keep using the word extraordinary. Uh, I'm, I'm cognizant of this, but it, it they really are remarkable times when, you when, as you say, you might well have uh, the majority of pensions for workers at the Bank of England um, at risk of... of I mean, um, look, look you, you, you seriously couldn't make this stuff up. I mean, it's it's just... It, it, it really is Banana Republic stuff, frankly. Um, it's embarrassing. And they just need to get a grip. All right. So uh, let's, let's fast forward uh, a little bit because we're going to come back and touch on a few of these uh of these uh points in our in our wrap-up in a moment but it was the present prime minister who we're about to get to who uh, i believe was chancellor of the exchequer during the time when the government was printing money to extend these furlough yeah. payments he was i think it, this is uh rishi sunak who was um he was the Chancellor of the Exchequer. I just checked on this this morning, but it was February of 2022. So this is right as the pandemic was was uh, was really kind of kicking off uh, in the Western world. He took over from Sajid Javid, uh, who served until until um, February of that year. Sorry, I meant to say February 2020. Uh, and Rishi was in that role from February 2020 to July of this year. So he, he it was Rishi who really oversaw that massive spending program. Um, and as they say, no bad deed uh, goes unrewarded in the realm of politics. So after having spent all this all this money, which the government was printing to have to cover, he's now been awarded the top job. So let's go to our third prime minister in as many months. Um, yeah. And we can start from the demise of trust and the rise of Sunak. Well, of course, Sunak was extremely popular at first when he was chancellor because he was handing out tons of money to people. Um, funny, so, that. <laughs> you know, funny how people like free money, but they don't think about what comes next. Um, mm. So, yeah, so he, he actually resigned um, just before Boris Johnson resigned from his... You know, so he, he stuck the knife into Johnson, clearly with an eye on getting the top job. 
then mm. he, then things didn't go to plan for the sort of establishment and trust got the job then she got effectively kicked out resigned technically but effectively got kicked out she had no authority yep. he ra- he put his hat in the ring again to run um for prime minister uh boris johnson came back and was running so he he reappeared and he he had to hustle himself onto a plane. He was on holiday in, in Barbados or somewhere and, and, and rushed back over the weekend um, to, to get back into Ghana, enough support from MPs to go forward. And there was a third candidate who is not worth talking about. Um, uh, and then Johnson just suddenly dropped out, having claimed he had the, enough support, dropped out. And so Sunak effectively was anointed the head of the Conservative Party without it going to any kind of vote of even the members of the Conservative Party, the gra- grassroots pe- act- activists and members. So it, it's a lot of people see it as a kind of um, globalist coup, if you like, because he's always been a bit more of that kind of globalist, high tax, big state. Uh, he's ex-Goldman Sachs, you know, the whole, he, he, you know, so financial establishment. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, a lot of people are very upset about it who... Uh, you know, feel that it's it's happened in an undemocratic way, both within the Conservative Party and clearly outside the Conservative Party. Um, right. But just to, just to, just to clarify, Joel, right. I, I think you must have got his name wrong because President Biden said that he's called Rashi Sanuk, not Rishi oh. Sunak. So so Biden obviously gets everything right. So yeah, we'll have to change well, his he, name. Yeah, he he would know. I I I don't I can't remember the last time Biden made a gaffe. So let's let's just go with. Uh, Sanuk uh, from from now on, Rashi Sanuk. <laughs> so uh, this this brings us essentially to present day. We have uh, um, a a World Economic Forum uh, rising star in. Now I'm going to keep pronouncing his name incorrectly. I'm going to get confused. Sunak, Rishi Sunak. So we have uh, an, an ex Goldman establishment um, fellow. So Rishi is a man who was very much in favor of a second referendum for uh, Brexit when the establishment didn't get the uh, vote that it wanted after the first after the first vote. He was a, he was a proponent for going back to the polls and and asking the. Brits again. Are you really sure this is what you want? Giving them, uh, yeah, giving yeah. Him keep, s- keep keep asking until you get the answer that you want. That's the way yes, it works. Yes, that's, that, that's, that, that's sort of standard EU, uh, you know, modus operandi. Is just, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. They they did it. They've done it. They've done it many many times. It's it's uh, yeah, kind of democracy by attrition. We just wear you down. We just keep asking you until we get the answer we we want. But there are a few other um, a few other things, and you've touched on a couple of them. Um, that give a little bit of insight into the way that uh, that Rishi Sunak may be sort of pointed and and may govern. Uh, I just want to touch on a couple of them. He's already um, announced and is widely expected in his um, in his policy agenda, which comes out later in November, that he's going to be raising uh, the corporations tax from nineteen to twenty five percent. This is in uh, fairly stark contrast to. The trust uh, administration recently ousted, uh, and I noticed in his very first uh, prime minister questions time, he reinstated the 2019 moratorium on drilling for shale gas in the UK. So, just to sort of bring listeners up to date, this was a, a moratorium that was overturned by uh, the trust government, who recognised that, of course. 
the UK is is facing somewhat of an energy crisis, as is large swaths of Europe right now as we head into winter, something we at Bonner Private Research have, have long been calling the coming winter catastrophe. It's almost on our on our doorstep now. And um and yeah, one of the one of the very first things that that uh, Mr. Sunak has uh, has said is that he will reinstate that moratorium. So we're going to be having higher taxes. We're going to be having um, a, a man who makes n- no secret about wanting to remain aligned with the European Union and and Brussels, and um, somebody who is apparently not at all worried about the energy security of of the uk at least not enough to to uh to drill for shale gas in his country so it's what what can we expect going forward now presume you know assuming that he lasts longer than his predecessor well i think what we can expect is a very big recession because they're raising (laughs) taxes into into an environment where um interest rates are rocketing so uh, unlike the us people don't have the um the, the good fortune to be able to get 30-year fixed rate mortgages. So most people have a variable rate mortgage or a maximum two, maybe maybe five in a few cases, fixed rate. And as those roll off, people are suddenly going to find their mortgage interest goes through the roof, mm. um, which obviously squeezes people's earnings. On the natural gas point, uh, natural gas is tremendously important in uh, the UK, both for power production, so electricity, because when the wind uh, doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine, that's the sort of base power. Because no one's been very keen on nuclear for a long time. Um, are you, are you so suggesting that the sun doesn't shine in the in the UK? I thought it was. <laughs> I thought you got at well, least a week uh, of sunshine in the UK. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I can't remember where, but uh, somewhere. <laughs> but, but 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 yeah, I mean, it's, it's, just layers, it's layers upon layers again because you couldn't make this up. So they they banned fracking, made gas their most important fuel source. And by the way, uh, lots of houses in the UK use it for domestic heating, water heating, and cooking as well. So yep, it's cooking. very important. Yep. Um, and the uh, Conservative Party, I, I don't, know, don't remember which year, uh, actually decommissioned the only major natural gas storage unit in the UK as well. So they haven't even got like a reserve of the stuff. Um, mm. So with the obvious sanctions against Russia for, for following the invasion of Ukraine and cutting off of that, which was the main supply of gas into Europe, the prices have rocketed. Now, the UK actually doesn't buy much gas from Russia, never did. It buys most of it from Norway, um, such that it doesn't produce at home. But of course, the price has still gone up in Norway, um, just right. like everywhere else. So it's created a big problem. So the trust government thought they'd um, you know, explore fracking. There are big reserves both in the north and the south of, of England. Um, but now they've gone back to the net zero agenda and uh, you know, um, preventing that moving forward. So, you know, it's it's it seems like a situation where there will be uh, energy insecurity, relatively speaking. Um, of course, by the uh, by the way, uh, this is I think relevant to the U.S. Uh, the U.S. is clearly sees this as an opportunity. I mean, I think there have been statements by various U.S. politicians <laughs> yes. to replace the gas demands in Europe, including the U.K with liquid natural gas that comes over from the USA. Um, so it's put in ships, tons of liquid put in ships, sailed over, turned back into gas. Now that's a lot more expensive than gas pipelines. But what it also means is at the margin, well, I've talked to American oil and gas executives about this, 
at the margin, it, it's driving up the price of natural gas in the USA. So there's in a the knock-on US. effect to US energy prices and inflation. And the question is how long US politicians politicians will actually put up with that. And if they start reintroducing export controls on US gas to keep the price down mm-hmm. there in a tricky inflationary political environment, Europe's left hanging, basically. So it'd be interesting to see how it how it pans out. But back to the UK, look, basically, it's going to be a big recession. I read something this morning, uh, one of the major lending banks, one, probably the biggest mortgage bank in the country, uh, saying that house prices could fall as much as 20% next year. In one year, so in a year yeah. alone, yeah, and that's their worst case scenario. But but you know, it's, yep. it's going to get hard. It's going to be. It's going to mean people are very upset with the politicians. It increases the likelihood of a Labour government next, and they they no one even knows their policies. They haven't got. I've checked their website. There are virtually no policies on there. But I think they're very left wing, and I think we could see again even higher taxes. Oh, and I should add this: the tax ratio to GDP in the UK currently under a supposedly conservative, supposedly pro-business, supposedly pro-market government is the highest it's been since the 1950s. I think it's running at, it's running at, uh, I forget the number now, but it's running at something like 70% of GDP, some crazy number anyway. But the highest since the 1950s, highest in seven decades. So that shows you the pickle the places in the problem they have. So I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. That's all I can say. <laughs> right. That's what passes for uh, fiscal restraint and conservatism uh, these days is really a far cry from what we might have expected, what our fathers and grandfathers uh, might have expected. And as you say, echoes of of similar problems uh, really around the Western world right now. And I guess that's to be expected when you you know you take off for various reasons, whether you, you know, on whatever side of the fence you you fall, uh, when you take off the market, one of the largest uh, gas and oil exporters in the world, uh, then you're going to have a scramble for supplies. And that's not at all helpful during, uh, and in the UK, in the US as well, and uh, and elsewhere, you know, the kind of inflation that we haven't seen since going back to the to the 70s i think uh the uk's uh inflation rate is i think north of 13% now if i read that correctly just in the past couple of days which is a yeah what well, the the traditional measure called retail prices index is around that level yeah but the of course they of course they're they're the um, statistics. standardizing to the, to the to the international norm of the consumer prices index which conveniently is about 3% lower <laughs> um, sure. Okay. Well, in, in in any case, I don't think these numbers. You know, you can you can tell the average consumer who's struggling to make ends meet and is having to choose between, uh, you know, milk and eggs, which people are you know smashing and pouring all over the floor in protests that we that we didn't even get to. Uh, you know, choosing between those sort of staple goods and whether or not to heat their house, it's not going to matter much different if politicians tell them that it's. Eleven point six percent or twelve point nine percent. They know they feel the pain, and uh, from what you say, there's there's apparently more of it to come. So, uh, with all that gloomy backdrop, I think we've been able to sift through much of the uh, Shakespearean comedy slash tragedy, depending on how you wish to view it uh, this fine morning. Um, Rob, what are you doing with regards to uh, your investment advice for 
your many tens of thousands of readers I know that that you have with Fortune and Freedom over in the UK. And are, are there any opportunities that uh, you think might be more broadly shared with uh, a larger audience? Yeah, I mean, I, I by the way, I'd just correct one thing. I do work with Fortune and Freedom, but our, the, the actual um, publication I do myself is UK Independent Wealth. It's very okay. um, UK focused. But um, I'll, put a, look, I'll put a link to those uh, beneath so that our, our uh, listeners can, can check it, check out your work. Perfect. Uh, look, um, I warned people to avoid the bond markets uh, nearly two years ago, and that's been absolutely the right call. Uh, bond markets have crashed. Um, I currently think the US stock market is still very overvalued. It's only it peaked on the third of January this year. Uh, it's down about a quarter, maybe twenty percent now. Um, that's only ten months. Uh, in the past, when we've had such big bubbles, by the by the way, uh, on some measures, um, the bubble in the US stock market was the second biggest after the technology bubble of ninety nine two thousand, and currently uh, it's only been. Uh, matched by the bubble of 1929 followed by the wall street crash so it's still a very expensive market so i'm generally avoiding that uh, the things i like uh, cash is bad obviously because it's losing um value against uh, inflation and interest rates and bank deposits are still rubbish so the things i'm focusing on are gold which has languished a bit this year particularly dollars because the dollar is so strong but i don't think we're out of this inflation problem yet and gold will have its day in my opinion it's just there's a bit of a time lag for it to take off and I'm looking for very cheap, uh, high dividend yield, solid companies with no debts, ideally, uh, to ride out this storm for a few years, uh, generate an income and not go bust in the process. Because I think a lot of companies are going to go bust as interest rates rise. Yeah. What's that uh, Buffett saying about seeing who is swimming without shorts when the tide goes out? I think we're going to see a few naked bums in the next couple of years. All right, Rob, mate, thank you very much for getting us up to speed with uh, the various goings-on across the pond. Uh, to our listeners out there in the US, the UK, and all around the world, thanks for tuning in again. We'll be back again next week with another Fatal Conceits podcast. In the meantime, again, please head over to the Substack page. You can find us at bonnerprivateresearch.substack.com. Plenty of good stuff over there, including more conversations like this. I'll leave you today and catch up with you again next week. Rob, thanks a lot for joining us, mate. Catch you again soon. Thanks, Joe.